Right. Today is a response Sunday and we have a practice in our church where every few months we take a break and we look back at where we've been and we look ahead at where we're going. Um, But today we're going to spend a little bit of time considering the meaning of the Advent season. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit of my own journey with you about Advent. So I've been blessed to be a Christian my whole life and um, that's been a gift. But I've never really embraced or understood the meaning of Advent until this year, which is kind of funny because I even grew up an Orthodox Christian, which in that practice, they practice Advent in a really structured way. But it just never really clicked for me um, until this year. It's starting to click in a different way. And maybe you have a rich practice of uh, considering Advent in your own life or in your own families. But if you're like me, you might kind of be familiar with what the season of Advent is, knowing it's around Christmas, it's celebrating the birth of Christ, um, but not know the meaningful history behind it and what it signifies. So I thought that for today's service, we'd just talk a little bit about Advent. We'd talk about what it has historically meant to the church and spend some time reflecting on a few reminders that Advent welcomes us to meditate upon each year at this time. So across the world, churches that follow a church calendar, they have marked seasons where they remember and they celebrate specific theological truths, and they do this in a way that engages their souls towards those truths. So Advent is one of those seasons, and it actually marks the beginning of the church calendar. And it takes place for about four weeks leading up to Christmas, ending on December 24th. So last Sunday actually was the first Sunday of Advent. We're now on the second Sunday. Advent is a time of preparation, and it's a time of waiting. It's a time where believers across the world put themselves in a mindset and a posture of preparing, of waiting, and of looking forward with anticipation to the coming Christ. There's a lot of cool things that you can research about the symbolism and the practices during Advent within different Christian denominations. And I actually would encourage you to do that. I think it will bless you and I think you'll be inspired by uh, the different practices that exist um, around the world. Uh, But for the purpose of our time today, we're just going to be thinking about the three main themes that Advent symbolizes. So the term Advent comes from a word that means coming or arrival. And there are three ways that Christians reflect upon this coming or arrival during the season of Advent. The first is Christ's physical coming in the incarnation. So what we celebrate on Christmas, that he came as a baby, the nativity story. That's the first one. The second one is Christ's coming into the life of the believer, the result of his death and his resurrection. And the third one is Christ's second coming. When he comes again and he brings the final judgment upon heaven and earth and restores and redeems all things. So during Advent, we look back to the past, to the first coming of Christ. We consider the present, Christ within us, and we look to the future when Christ will come again. Let's begin with the first of the three reflections. The incarnation, Christ's first coming into the world. The incarnation is one of the bedrocks of Christian theology. It's so important for us to peer into this great mystery and to consider the weight of what it means. We celebrate the incarnation at Christmas that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, took on human flesh to become one of us. In the incarnation, we are acknowledging the mystery, and it is a mystery, that Christ remained both fully divine and fully human. 
Though he took on human form, he didn't lose his divinity. Rather, he added a human nature. Paul says in Philippians 2 that though he, Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. The son forsook some of his divine rights by taking on a human life. Try to wrap your mind around that as best as you can in this moment. That the eternal God bound himself to a human body. And not only did he bind himself to a human body, but he entered into a womb. And he developed there for nine months. He was born as a baby into a poor family. And he lived life as a normal person. And don't think that his divine nature subtracted from his human nature, because to think that would be to diminish the severity of what the incarnation is saying. He held both natures equally. And that means that Jesus experienced life exactly as we do, but he was without sin. But being without sin doesn't mean being without temptation. We know that Jesus endured temptation. It's recorded for us. And he lived his life in dependence on the Father through the power of the Spirit. Luke 4 tells us that Jesus was filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. Now pause and think about this, that the incarnate God was filled with the Spirit and obeys the Father. By his death and resurrection, we receive that same Holy Spirit. And now we can emulate his life, obeying his commands through the Spirit And in addition, go to our own crosses to live a life that walks like Christ, loving God and loving others. Jesus's life not only provides life for us through his death and resurrection, but also the way by which we can even live that life. The scriptures are clear that as a human, Jesus experienced much suffering. He was not immune to pain or to challenge, to rejection, to hardship, to even learning and growing. Remember, this is God becoming a man. Think about Jesus as God who understands in an experiential way what it's like to be a human being. Just think about the weight of that. The life Jesus lived is truly in solidarity with ours. He knows what it's like to be a person. Christ's incarnation is an act of love beyond what we can ever fathom. We do not have a paradigm to wrap our minds around the magnitude of what it means for God to become a human being. We have no way to understand the gravity of what Christ chose to submit himself to, of what he forsook, of what he endured. And all of this was for love. As John says, Christ stepped into the very world he created. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word for dwelt literally means tabernacled. It's a reference to the Old Testament's understanding of the very presence of God within the midst of his people. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I'm going to read that one more time. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. During Advent, we consider the mystery of God binding himself to humanity, not just in an emotional expression of love, but by literally becoming one of us. Could there be any greater act of solidarity from God to human beings? 
And God did not just become one of us to have solidarity with us, but he came to die and to rise from the dead in order to cover our sins and to conquer death and offer us life and hope. So when we celebrate Christmas, when we remember the incarnation, we remember the miracle of God's great expression of love towards us by becoming one of us. I'm going to read Hebrews 1, 14 to 18 to close this segment on the incarnation. And as I read it, I just want to encourage you to try to really ingest it. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So right now we're going to give you just a couple minutes to reflect on the power of the incarnation. We're going to put part of that verse on the screen and just allow you to think, um, to process it, and then give you a chance to respond to God within yourself. Well, not only did Jesus come into the world, but he came into the lives of people. From the very first, he was born into a family. That's not necessarily the way that had to go, but he came into the life of his mom and dad, of his aunts and uncles and cousins. He came into the life of leaders in the synagogue. He came into the life of people at wedding parties and beside wells. He came into the life of those who were very well educated and those who were outcasts. The Bible tells story after story after story of people, not just that Jesus knew in a, in a broad way, but people that Jesus walked with and talked with you see, the Lord Jesus didn't just come to the world in a figurative sense. He didn't just come in a big, overarching umbrella kind of sense. He came to us. He came into the lives of people like you and me. There are those who walked and talked with Jesus, people who shared sandwiches with him and borrowed his robe on cold days, and he probably loaned his sandals to people who's broke or whatever. Like, Jesus was a person living with people, and that's part of what he came to do. Part of what Jesus came to do was to give us a picture of what life could be. He came and lived a perfect life. The Bible teaches us that he lived a perfect life, which means that he never failed to glorify God in his thoughts, in his words, in his deeds, in his attitudes, in his interactions with other people. He models for us what human life can be, what it means to be a human. Jesus didn't just come to the world. He came into the lives of people. The Bible teaches that he came to the earth and he called disciples. He met people under trees. And like I said, he even sits down on the side of a well with a woman who had been outcast by her townspeople, by her friends. And he offers her life. He offers her knowledge. He offers her welcome and warmth. Jesus is kind to those who'd been set aside. And he doesn't just come to the world in order to show us how to live. He, he comes to the world in order to save us from all that is broken. See, the Bible teaches that all of us are busted. And I, you don't need me to tell you that. If you've been living for any length of time, you know both your own brokenness and you know the brokenness of the world, right? We know we live in a busted place with busted people, including us. You only have to watch the news for two minutes to see the truth of that. And that brokenness not only wrecks our relationships with one another, that brokenness separates us from God, who created us to know him and to love him.
And God wasn't satisfied for us to be separated from him. And so Jesus comes to the earth and he comes into our lives in order to glorify the Father by rescuing us from sin and death. We who had been rendered spiritually dead by sin, Jesus comes and he takes the sin of the world on himself. Isaiah says that the iniquity or the wickedness of us all was placed on him. He comes as an atoning sacrifice, as a substitute. And Jesus dies on the cross, not because he was tricked, not because he was betrayed. He doesn't die on the cross because people took advantage of him. He, he died on the cross because he intended to die on the cross. Jesus himself says, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and to take it back up again. What he's pointing at there is that in coming into our lives, he came to lay down his own. And Jesus went to the cross with intention to lay down his life for us, to pay the penalty for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. They buried him dead and three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And in so doing, not only had he paid the penalty for our sin, but he'd proven that he is more than a man, more than a prophet, more than a good guy who cares about people. He was all of those things, but he was so much more. He's the king of the universe with resurrection power, which is significant for us because what we need more than anything is someone who can make dead things live. And that's who Jesus proved to be. And by his grace... He then extends to us that same resurrection power. He extends to us, human beings, men and women who are broken, the ability to made whole, the ability to be made new, to have resurrection life by faith in Christ. In fact, it says in Romans 10 that anyone who will declare, so there's kind of an external declaration, anyone who will declare that Jesus is their Lord, that means their master, their rabbi, the one who they're following, anybody who will declare that Jesus is the king, who will declare that Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Similarly, John 3.16 says, God loved the world so much that he sent the only son he had that anybody who believes in him won't perish, but instead would have eternal life. Jesus didn't just come into the world. He came into the lives of people and he came to give people life. By the time we get to the New Testament, uh, the, the book of Acts, as we hear about the early church, there were, there were times when there were hundreds or thousands of people who were doing just what it says in Romans 10. They were believing that Jesus was their Lord. They were claiming him as their king. And they were trusting that he'd been raised from the dead. It says there were people that were being saved regularly. What that means is that there was a moment in time for those individuals prior to which they didn't know Christ. And then after hearing the testimony of the apostles hearing the testimony of his disciples, hearing the testimony of those who'd walked with Jesus and shared a sandwich with him and maybe borrowed his robe, that after hearing that testimony, they themselves, people who, by the way, maybe had never shared a sandwich with Jesus, people who who were hearing about Jesus only after his resurrection and ascension, they heard the truth of what what he did and the truth of who he was, and they called him their Lord. They believed that he'd been raised from the dead and they were made new by the hundreds and thousands. Well, the reality is the same thing is true for us this morning. We talk about the gospel here every week because the gospel we find sort of rooted in every text in the Bible where we're studying. But the reality is that there's a point in each and every one of our lives where we personally have to say, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the king of the universe. Not only that, I believe that he's my king. That you call him your Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead. And in that moment, what we believe is that you, by his grace and through your faith, are made new. And so in our response service this morning, we want to take a moment, a couple of minutes, just of quiet contemplation. And what I want you to ask yourself is the most important question that any human being ever asks herself or himself. And it's this. Is Jesus your Lord? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? 
Because if he's your Lord and you've declared it as such, and if you believe that he's been raised from the dead, that he is more than a prophet and a good guy, but that he's the king of the universe, you can be made new. And so in these quiet moments before we sing again, I invite you to just reflect on this question. Have you ever put your faith in Christ? And if the answer to that question is no, that you haven't done that, we invite you to do that right where you sit. That right where you sit, you can cry out to God. You can declare Jesus to be your Lord, believing that he rose from the dead, and you can be made new before we sing the next song, believe it or not. That's the power God has in our lives. And so I invite you to ask yourself this question. Are you a follower of Jesus? Not a churchgoer. You're obviously a churchgoer. You're here, right? I'm not asking if you have parents that are religious. I'm not asking if you know a lot of Christians or you've studied the Bible or if you have a theology degree. I'm not asking any of that. I'm asking you this morning, are you a follower of Jesus the Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead? And if the answer to that question right now is no, we invite you to commit yourself to Christ as we respond together. To wait, to stay in place in expectation of, to remain stationary in readiness, to look forward expectantly, to hold back expectantly, to be ready and available. Advent is a season of waiting. Today, in 2022, we are not waiting for a savior, a rescuer to be born, nor are we waiting for his death or resurrection. We do not have to wait for forgiveness or salvation. Those things are all past realities we can take part in right now. Yet we are in a place of waiting. Even last Sunday, when we took communion together, we did it as an act of remembrance for what Jesus did through his death and resurrection. But we also did it in anticipation of Jesus coming again. It was an act of waiting. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Jesus is coming again. In the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 22, three times Jesus tells us, I am coming soon. And soon feels complicated. John recorded those words almost 2,000 years ago. That feels long to us. Followers of Jesus in every generation since then have been sure that Jesus would come in their lifetimes. And he has not come yet. But he is coming. And all of us, whether we follow Jesus or not, whether we are aware of it or not, are waiting for his coming. When he comes, the fullness of his kingdom will come with him. We will no longer be in the tension of a broken world that has salvation available to us, thank goodness, but is still facing the daily reality of sin and pain. When Jesus comes again, he will permanently do away with all grief and all our brokenness and all the consequences of it for those who have surrendered their lives to him. 
He will reign in a perfected world evil will never touch again. So how are we waiting? Are we holding back? Are we staying in one place in fear and paralyzed by the wildly hard things happening in our world, trying to wait out the evil until Jesus comes? Are we waiting expectantly with joy, like for the birth of a child? Or waiting with dread, like for a test result we know will not be good? Are we waiting alone? Or are we waiting together? Are we waiting with purpose? The last definition that I mentioned earlier of waiting is to be ready and available. What would it look like for us to spend time this Advent season remembering who Jesus is so that we are waiting, ready, and available? What might it look like for us to wait for Jesus' return by actively loving people the way Jesus loved people? This Advent season, how can we bring light and life, freedom and healing, and love to friends and enemies alike? Jesus is coming again. What would it look like to wait? No, to live with eager expectation. We are not called to wait idly for Jesus to come back. We are called to wait actively, sharing the good news of Jesus and his coming kingdom with those in our circles in the everydayness of our daily life. Take a few minutes right now to reflect and maybe even to write down, make a list of some ways that you can bring light and life, freedom and healing, and the love and truth of Jesus, the joy we have knowing that he is coming again to those around you who may not know yet that they are waiting for Jesus. This Jesus that we remember at Advent is the Jesus who came. And he's the Jesus who's here with us today. And he's the Jesus who is coming. And we celebrate all of that Advent. When you put the lights on the tree or when you, you know, cook the ham. I don't know what you do with ham. But all all of that, all of that is in remembrance of this Jesus who came and is with us now and is coming again. And we want to, I was thinking about what Kristen said as she was teaching that the idea that we don't want to wait eagerly alone for the return of Christ. That's something we get to do together. And what a, what a gift, a joy, both to sing his praise in a worship service like this, but also to gather in our homes and as friends and in all the various ways we're doing that during the Advent season. I encourage you to remember this Jesus uh, who, who came and is here and is coming.